The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and politics, startups. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Once I first got promoted to a manager, not managing director, but I managed a team, that's when people started looking at me and saw me as a threat because now I was eating their lunch. Now I was taking an opportunity that they felt was theirs. I was taking it away from them. That was important to the to the founders of Axios when they started the company. And they've sort of been very vocal about the fact that they went into every market and found the best reporters there. I can say they have. I mean, my Axios local colleagues are, are, are stunning in their talent. They're Pulitzer Prize winners. In case you missed it, from Wall Street whistleblowing to coffee shop tipflation and Iran's season of protests, Highlights from recent Full Disclosure episodes for your holiday travel enjoyment. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with former Goldman Sachs executive Jamie Fiore Higgins, who came on in October to discuss her bombshell new book, Bully Market. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jamie Fiore Higgins. Her hot-selling book is Bully Market. She was a managing director at Goldman Sachs, lasted there for 18 years. Jamie and I go back to the analyst class at Goldman Sachs, the fateful analyst class, the summer of 1998. She might not remember me, but I remember our conversation. I remember her talking about scoliosis and the difficulty of wearing these pumps and walking around lower Manhattan and catching various trains to and from the inner part of the Garden State to get to one New York plaza. And here you have this tell-all book. Um, I want to go back to your first bonus. You flicked at it. You know, we're paid something like $40,000, $45,000 a year, but you're called in. They played a mind game with you initially. You busted your tail. You kept your head down. You dealt with the wisecracks and the, you know, the hot dress spreadsheets and everything else and really delivered a star performance as an analyst to the extent that they gave you multiples of your salary as a bonus your first year. That's right. And it was shocking because when I was first called in, they said, well, you know, Jamie, bonuses are discretionary. We don't have to pay you anything. And I said, oh, what a fool I was thinking I would get a bonus. And they essentially, my total comp was something like triple my salary. And I just remember thinking it felt like a pile of like funny money from Monopoly. And It was the first experience I had with how money could really anesthetize you. It made me think of what my mom always said about childbirth, where when you hold that baby in your arms, you kind of forget about all the pain to get there. And so after I got that money and I made my family so proud, it was shocking success, shocking. And not only did I make more than my parents had after, you know, 30 year plus careers, I had a brother and sister 10 years my senior, both professionals, a pharmacist and a lawyer. I was making more than they were. And then, of course, you have to ask yourself, well, is it really all that bad? So was that when you broke bad? 
Would you say looking back, especially you talked about your grandmother's words earlier and that the fact, the idea that this corrupted, and it seems risible right now in terms of what you made later on, in terms of what you were managing, in terms of your portfolio as a managing director there, you know, 120, 140 grand was Trump change, right? You're talking about the millions later in your life. You're talking about the big expenses, the car services, the first class tickets, the various expenses that these VP and partner level people deal with. But when would you say you broke bad? I remember a certain innocence was lost when you were working on a presentation. I think it was in training or something, and you walked in on a couple of your your you know in your class mid coitus in the computer yes. lab room. Yes. I mean, that's just not supposed to happen at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, you know, for for me, it was just like. I couldn't believe the audacity of these people. I was such a rule follower and I felt so lucky to get there. Goldman made me feel like you got the job everyone wanted. You mm. were a nobody from nowhere and we plucked you out of obscurity for this role. You better earn it every day. And the audacity of some of these people, I kind of felt like, well, you know what? A lot of them were trust fund kids. A lot of them had connections. They didn't value the opportunity quite like I did. So even though we took drug tests on day one, they were snorting lines in the bathroom that evening, you know, although, you know, I was working, you know, burning the midnight oil to do great on these presentations. They were literally like screwing around in the, you know, computer, in the computer lab. So to me, I felt like they were just allowed to just have this laissez-faire attitude where I felt like, I had to be, you know, be on my P's and Q's all the time in order to earn the spot I had. At which point, at which long commute back from one New York plaza or to the place, you know, crack of dawn, did you realize that I really don't like this? And look, I'm inexorably right now on the associate track, on the VP track. I mean, you stayed there for 18 years. At what point did you realize that this really isn't great, but I can't get out of it, that it was a bit of an abusive relationship. It was very early on that I realized that the role did not, that the culture did not align with my values. And you brought up something I think that's very key. You know, when you earn all this money on Wall Street, it's not your total compensation divided by 24, meaning you earn a 24th of it every, you know, two weeks, twice a month kind of thing. Instead, the vast majority of it is at the end of the year. And so you're always kind of waiting for those next few months to hit. I wasn't happy, but my parents really pushed me. They said, you know, Jamie, it's work. It's not fun. You know, um, trust me, what you're doing, you're going to set yourself up later on. And I'll never forget on my way to Jersey City, where I used to take the ferry or the, or the path train, there was a Jordash factory, like Jordash jeans. And every morning I'd be driving there at five in the morning and all these people would be walking to the Jordash factory, you know, with their paper lunch sacks in hand, ready to do their shift. And I would say, Jamie, who do you think you are? Like, you're not some trust fund kid who can dabble on Wall Street for a couple of years and then go kind of, you know, sit and work for the family business. These people are working hard. You need to work hard too. So really that kind of obligation I felt to my family spurred me on for years and years and years. And I felt like I was just so lucky. I had this spot that everyone wanted. And Goldman was very good at telling you, you know, 
This is the job everyone wants. You're nothing without us. You can only leave Goldman once. So I was so afraid to leave. That's the big joke of it all, Robin. Like I really thought I was a prisoner, but the joke was the door was always unlocked. I could have left any time. But the way the comp structure was, the magnitude of the compensation, the obligation I felt to my family of origin, it just pushed me to stay year after year after year. When did the misogyny hit a tripwire? I mean, you were actually assaulted. Again, I, it's it's crazy to me to read this here. I can understand to a certain level, infidelity happened a lot in the partner track. A lot of time, partners are away from their wives, long commutes to, I don't know, Bronxville or Connecticut. People, uh, you know, with adoring, rather beautiful associates and analysts from schools that had this, what, what do you call it? The Genevieve Goldman glow? Yes, right? yes. Things happen, drugs, money, intoxication, but you were actually hit and pushed yeah. and shoved. Talk to me about that. I felt that the toxicity, the misogyny, the discrimination really hit ahead once I started getting promoted. So in the beginning, all this nonsense is going on around me. I'm not going to play into it. In fact, they used to call me Sister Jamie. Because, oh, because I mean, the nonsense you're talking about in the book is when people would rate, when these traders would act boorish and rate women on exactly. ability and the spreadsheets and everything. You, you, you were disgusted, but you let it roll off your shoulders. I said, you know what? I'm keeping my eye on the prize. I'm going to be long-term greedy. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, uh, you know, ignore it. It's nonsense. I don't want to be a part of it. In fact, the guys on the desk used to call me Sister Jamie because I would like, turn red when they would always talk about this stuff. And I would just, again, put my head down and work hard. And once I started getting recognized, and once I first got promoted to a manager, not managing director, but I managed a team, right. that's when people started looking at me and saw me as a threat. Because now I was eating their lunch. Now I was taking an opportunity that they felt was theirs. I was taking it away from them. So and that's when it started happening. So uh, would you would you illustrate the background of this physical assault? Yeah, um, sure. And and how how it happens in a place with all these cameras and everything and and HR culture. I again, I I this is not the 1950s or the 1980s or the 1970s. This happened at Goldman Sachs in the aughts. Yeah. So I became a manager and I managed a business and one of the guys who worked for me, it was a very awkward situation to begin with because I had essentially swapped roles with him. He had been demoted and I got promoted over him. So you can imagine he was very frustrated with me. On top of it, just a week or so before it was announced that I was getting promoted, he was getting demoted, he hit on me at an event to which I declined. So I think there was a little bit of, you know, what I always find interesting is when you get propositioned, in my experience, and someone passes, like, no, thank you. Not only are, you, not only is the person who propositioned you not embarrassed, they're almost pissed at you because I didn't take him up on it. So he was pissed at me that I didn't take him up on it. Then he was really pissed because I was now his boss. So it was an awkward situation which got even more awkward because this gentleman's wife started calling me on the desk. She knew who I was because we had met at, you know, different social drinks. And she had it in her mind that he was having an affair 
with one of our clients, which should not happen at Goldman Sachs, right? And so she would call and this affair he was having was the worst kept secret, but I had no proof. So I had never brought it up to anyone. I just kind of ignored it. But then she started calling me and it really tugged on my heartstrings because she was a lovely woman. She had some little kids at home. She was really desperate for help. And I tried to be nice to her, but finally the calls became too much and they were, they were a distraction at work. I mean, yeah, you can imagine. I can imagine. I, was, I can imagine. Right? So I went to my boss and I said, listen, this is what's happening. He said, I said, you know, there's a problem. If he's having an affair with a client, he really shouldn't. And he said, listen, I agree it's inappropriate, but I'm not getting rid of him. And I, I say the guy had something better than a 4.0 from Harvard. He was a scratch golfer. And so he got my partner and all the other partners access to all the golf courses across the country because he was friends with all the local golf pros at Augusta, at Baltistrol, at Pebble Beach in Europe. So he said, listen, he said, why don't you just take him off the account? And then he's not having an affair with someone he's covering. I didn't want to make it seem like I was signaling this guy out, right? So I said, you know what? I'm fairly new to the team. Let me mix up all the account coverage. So he doesn't feel like he was singled out. He's no longer covering the person. And we'll go from there. But they're asking you effectively to be an accomplice in a bit of a cover-up. A hundred percent. Full disclosure, stay with us. Islamic devolution was what I called my talk with Negar Mortazavi, who's been following the new fault lines across Iran's autumn and winter protests. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Iranians like to call it Washington, D.C., is Negar Mortazavi. She's a journalist and commentator, host prominently of the Iran podcast. You've seen her byline in Foreign Policy and The Independent and The Intercept, and she's been covering these rolling protests in Iran for the better part of a month since Masa Amini was, was bludgeoned and taken into custody and emerged uh, dead. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know, I think about this when people accost me as an Iranian-American and someone who was born in Iran and saying, are these unprecedented protests? I think back to 1999 when they were unprecedented. I think back to 2009 and the protests over the elections and the killing of a young woman in the street who died on internet video, bled to death. I think about 2017, 2018. And at what point is it kind of true brinksmanship for this regime? I'm sure you get asked a lot. It is. It's, and you know, it's difficult to, to speculate. Um, we're now hearing from some historians saying right before the 1979 revolution, there were people who didn't imagine a revolution happening, but we um, also have talked to other historians who are saying, no, this, that was a moment building. There was a clear foundation and leadership and it looked very different to what it is today. Anyways, it doesn't have to always look the same, but we've seen these protests and the grievances and the anger build up over the years and decades. And this is just a culmination of that, of four decades of resistance by women against state-sanctioned discrimination in law, against state violence in enforcing the law, the mandatory hijab, the various levels of discrimination against women. And essentially saying enough is enough. We're hearing very radical slogans on the street against the entirety of the system, the Islamic Republic, senior leaders. So the demand is very radical by many protesters. But will this lead to a radical change? It's still hard to speculate. 
I see your tweet from September 15th to quote, in Iran, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini is in a coma after being violently arrested by the, quote, morality police for not wearing proper hijab head covering in Tehran. Her name is trending on Persian Twitter and Instagram, and Iranian users are outraged. We've since seen hundreds of people potentially killed, many people taken into custody. You know how this song plays out. The regime does fight back with disproportionate force using live rounds, using pellets. I think looking back at the lesson of the late Shah of Iran in the 1979 revolution is if you blink, the crowd will overwhelm you. That's exactly the playbook of the regime. And because this is a regime that came out of a revolution against the previous one, they also know many of those tactics of the revolutionaries. They have tried to completely disable any form of leadership, or dissent inside the country, the civil society, weakened civil society. We we saw the leaders of the 2009 Green Movement essentially be placed on their house arrest for over a decade until today. In 2019, also mass protests across the country. The state crushed it with an iron fist. Hundreds killed on the street. Thousands were arrested. Many of them given very harsh sentences. So. The repression and the violence has been brutal and the state has shown willingness and ability to crush this form of dissent. But they're also dealing with a crisis of legitimacy. This is a serious crisis of legitimacy because you may be able to send people back home at every round, but if you don't address the grievances, their demands, it just keeps piling up and piling up. And now we're seeing this intersectionality of all kinds of protests from different communities. Today, we saw lawyers, we're seeing school children, it was university uh, students, teachers, unions, laborers, and now oil workers have also joined. So how did it tip over to the critical oil sector, which is obviously the majority of the economy, the majority of Iran's critical exports at a time of inflation and a paucity of hard currency? Well, we have seen unrest among the oil workers in the past. There's a lot of economic, you know, underlying economic grievances, work conditions, um, and just a change in that mm. industry. So we have seen on and off protests by oil, work, oil workers here and there, but now them joining sort of this mass movement, this nationwide um, movement is also very significant because specifically historians point to the seven, 1979 revolution where also the oil strikes played a very important role, a key role in the, in the success of the revolution. It's difficult because today the state relies less on the oil sector than it did the previous uh, regime did in 1979. So it's difficult to say right now. I was just uh, talking to an expert who said it also depends on how long they can sustain and how much of an economic blow this will be to the state. But nevertheless, it's a significant first step. I have to pose the question because it gets posed to me all the time. Is Iran capable of some sort of grand bargain? Either exogenously, say the Biden administration makes it an offer it cannot refuse with if you scale back your nuclear ambitions, maybe if you do less nefarious stuff in the region. And then can it similarly turn to its people and say, all right, I'm giving you a choice like the Chinese did after the Tiananmen massacre in 1989. You're not allowed to touch politics, but if you opt for the other route, we'll let you pursue economic self-determination. You can become wealthy in this country. You can travel abroad. You can avail yourself of, of uh, sanctions relief and everything else. Just don't touch the third rail of hijab and politics. Is that even possible with the Islamic Republic? Well, it's difficult to say because the state's response so far to these protests and dissent has been so rigid and so 
stubborn in a way. The political space has closed even further. There's social, cultural restrictions. Now, this this issue of hijab, this is not really political. The state has turned this into a very political national security issue, but it has to do with day-to-day very non-political women, even some religious women, some hijabi women, there was this hashtag on Instagram, a campaign, hundreds of thousands were posting that I am hijabi, but I oppose the morality police, basically signaling to the state that don't do this in my name. Don't do this in the in my belief. We're hearing from religious scholars now saying this this form of violent enforcement of the hijab is not even within their reading of Islam. It's a very fundamentalist reading that only belongs to the state. And it's a way of control, exerting the control over women's bodies and also a visible symbol of the quote-unquote Islamic Republic that many other Muslim countries from Indonesia to Morocco don't have this form of mandatory hijab and enforcement or violent enforcement by the state. In the case of Masa Amini, lethal violence eventually led to her death in custody. So it's difficult to see what the turning point or a wake-up call, if, is this is going to be a wake-up call to the state or are they going, going to be stubborn and rigid all the way to the end? But so far, they haven't shown much sign of flexibility. Does it all emanate from the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, who was said to be ill, but he looked rather hail when he made comments about these protests a few days ago. We haven't seen a turnover since the Ayatollah Khomeini died, I believe it was in the late 80s, that that, that is the center of gravity, that is the locus of control. Could Is there even room for a less rigid Ayatollah to set forward? Well, there is a strong hardline slash conservative stronghold in the political structure. And obviously, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini is the top hardliner in the country himself. There is also a hardline base, even I would argue more hardline or more conservative than him, uh, that keep pushing him and the political structure to that direction. But he sits at the top of it. He is the top hardliner in power with a lot of uh, sway as far as the direction the country goes. And so far, we've only seen stubbornness, calling these protesters rioters and disruptors and foreign agents, saying this issue of hijab is a US-made issue. It's a national security issue. It's a way of going against the regime. But it's not. It's everyday women and girls who see themselves in Mahsa Amini, this small town 22-year-old girl who was visiting the capital with her family. Women see themselves in how she was dressed. We have seen images of her in detention. And we have some religious women even asking what exactly was wrong with what she was wearing, that she had to die for it or be killed for it. Men men see their own sisters in Mahsa Amini and this violence from the state that could be subjected to their own sister any day. Nagar, talk about the stakes of being out there, being very open, kind of sticking up a middle finger at authorities when it is a surveillance state. They're taking many cues from the Chinese and facial recognition technology. Any metro you step into, uh, you know, just like the, the January 6th insurrectionists were cleaned up in various photos and online amateur investigations of people, can't the regime just go back and look at the faces and arrest people? Is that even possible en masse? Or is this so widespread that they cannot possibly do a wholesale crackdown like they have in the past? Well, the the protests are, are massive in every province across the country, dozens of cities, interestingly, even in religious cities like Qom and Mashhad. But at the same time, I was speaking to, to someone in the country the other day and was telling me a regular protester, not a journalist, not a political activist, just this a regular woman who was present at a protest was filmed 
by the security forces and then later identified and then raid, they raided the person's home at night and arrested them. So we are hearing a lot of these instances of journalists being arrested, political activists being arrested, or getting calls from security forces telling them to tone it down or stop going to protests or stop being active online and threatening them with arrest. And also ordinary protesters either being killed on the street, picked up on the street, or identified from videos and images later and then taken from their homes or place of work. Let me just read from Human Rights Watch's latest report saying they've documented numerous incidents of security forces unlawfully using excessive or lethal force against protesters, shotguns, assault rifles, handguns against protesters, and in some cases, even shooting at them as people were running away, so from behind. Full disclosure, stay with us. A few weeks back, I profiled Alchemy Coffee's move to counter the great resignation by ditching tips and propelling staff onto the partnership track. So I want you to open up the thought process behind this co-op model here. These uh, Many restaurants are kind of at a fork in the road where they decided, you know, we're going to curtail hours. If that doesn't work, we're going to shut down. You've seen a, a tremendous mortality rate coming out of this pandemic, you really opened a lot of eyes by saying, I want to provide a whole new incentive system at a time when it's hard to hire and retain people. I want to turn this into a cooperative ownership model. Tell me about the genesis of it and how it's going. It starts with you know what we've seen from the economy with inflation, with $15 an hour with my staff a couple of years ago when we started this was great. There were no issues, no concerns. They have had their rent go up. They've had food costs go up many things that a lot of us have experienced. On our side, from on the employer's side, we've had our costs go up in terms of paper products for dairy. You know, everybody understands the impact that inflation has had. So when my staff comes to me and says, hey, this hourly wage just isn't cutting it, what can we do? Well, within the service industry, there is a model in terms of what percent of sales should go to labor. You know, it's anywhere between 30 and 40%. You can only push that so far, and then you are no longer have profit. And we do need to have profit to operate, right? We are not a nonprofit. There has to be money to pay rent, to pay cost of goods. There has to be some left over. Generally, best case scenario, it's 10% left over at the end. Rarely happens. Wow. But any restaurant operator is looking to hit that number, okay? So we can only push labor costs so high until we have to raise prices. So we've looked at that and we've done that. We've now done that multiple times to keep pace, but we can see where this is going and to say, we need an alignment so that those that are asking for more money are also tied to the right incentives that say when the business does better, they do better. And my staff in particular has a capability set to run the operation. This is not something I'm proposing out of the blue because I don't know if they can do it. I know they can handle it. They can effectively act as owner operator. They can act as employee owners. So what is a hot, what is the most and the, the best level of competition I give? Well, I literally give them a percent of the profits so that they're on the line as we make changes and decide how to do things. They're right there with me. Now, time out. It's hard enough. They always say it's like herding cats to keep people in a you know, quick serve or fast casual or fast food operation. The turnover rate has been notoriously high. We clearly see the Starbucks labor contratemps in the news 
how do you sit people down? One, assume that they're going to stick around and be more than short-term minded, that this is not a three, four-month gig, that no, I'm going to inculcate ownership culture. Well, in a sense, it's the opposite. I'm going to have people that have the mindset to stick around. Nobody's going to buy in to an employee cooperative that intends to leave three or six months from now. It is going to effectively create more tenure, less turnover, because those that will buy in are looking to be here long term. And we have a number of people in the barista community who want that, who love their craft and are looking and yearning for ways to advance within the industry. And there aren't always opportunities to give them, meaning we don't have multiple layers of management. We don't have 18 locations where you can be the general manager or oversee you know, five locations, et cetera. We have barista, manager, and owner. And that's that's where it stops. So and we can move everybody up the ladder to the ownership level. They're more invested. They are able to put their head down, focus on the craft, and know that all the work they're putting in, they literally reap the benefit of. How does this work for you? Is it like a gradual exit over time? You kind of get reduced in terms of your ownership stake until it's a total happy kibbutz? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, we're we're gonna see where it goes. But if that's how I exit the industry, that I do so with my staff becoming employee owners, then I, I think that's the most graceful way to exit possible, to create something that is sustainable, that lives on, um, that that whose culture, you know, maintains itself. So um I, I would love to see that be the way that, that I go if that is what happens. Who knows? You know, we're we're just starting on this journey. Um, but I do know that my staff can do it. I, I think they deserve that opportunity. And it's a way of getting ahead of what these labor shortages are and these you know, rising costs and demands you know, from the labor force. We're seeing the move towards unionization. To me, the cooperative model is a higher form of that. And unionization in a small business is misguided, frankly. The idea that that will benefit you, I, I think unionization makes sense in a larger model. It makes sense in a Starbucks. but Generally, in smaller operations, there's more dialogue, there's more ability to find common ground between owner and employees. And I think in a smaller operation, unionization builds walls um, and builds unintended uh, breakdowns in communication. But a worker cooperative, to me, overcomes that because everybody's at the table with the same incentive. Are there tax benefits to doing this? I don't think they're tax benefits. I haven't looked in that realm. Um, you know, you're converting from a single member to multi-member LLC in a sense. Um, so, so are I, you going to make create uh, share shares of this business? Yes, I mean, effectively, as a sole member, I own 100 percent of the shares in a sense. I mean, you know, we're not trading on Wall Street, so we rarely think of it that way. But yeah, effectively, you're converting and selling shares of that stake. And so, the objective is still to clear something like a 10 percent margin when all said and done and you divvy it up among the owners. How do you decide? And I know I'm getting into nuts and bolts and inside baseball, but there's a little bit of the flair of full disclosure. I got to tell you, how do you decide how much gets reinvested back into the business or people who have money, who have rent, who have inflationary pressures want to take it out of the business? Um, That's where the bylaws come into effect. So that structure is TBD. That structure and those parameters will be determined by the employee owners. Um, We have a nonprofit we're working with out of San Francisco. They're grant funded. Um, They've been great to talk to so far. They've guided others through this journey and they will help 
kind of set that. We also have another coffee shop in town, Afterglow Coffee, who went this round. They took over for one of the lamplighter operations. This was more employee driven. So the employees got together, decided to, to buy out the owner and continue on that. But they're great people. They uh, are more than happy to to help us through this journey too and, and give guidance because they're a couple years in and they have insight and hindsight to, to help us with that. Hmm. What about expansion capital? I mean, is expansion still on the table? I would think that a, a capitalist like you, a student of economics, a person who pounced on this opportunity a decade ago and saw opportunity and worked with VCU and the various other counterparties would say, wow, I see an industry right now retrenching. I see so many things in flux. This is the time for me to show up and pounce on those corners, like you talked about the Estes corner. I mean, now suddenly West Broad has a ton of these high-capacity drive throughs Starbucks took over that derelict Arby's not far from you. Uh, these things have become machines, but they've lost the soul. Like You don't really are not really invited to go in and sit down with sure. your laptop at a Starbucks anymore. Yeah, I mean, those, some of those formats are transactional, right? They're about volume. Um, look, if Estes Park, if Estes Trucking wants to reach out and and grant us the opportunity to operate in that platform, we'd gladly, you know, you mean like on the lawn of the funeral home, right there? It's it's paved, but setting up the trailer, letting people kind of drive through, we jump at that. Another format that we love the idea of is that kind of kiosk model. To me, around MCV is still one of um, the best environments for that. You see hungry why, doctors and nurses coming out. And at all times, um, you know, we had great reception. We've tried going out there. Unfortunately, you know, at, for the time being, Aramark has a stranglehold on all kind of VCU business from that standpoint. So we can't open in any uh, VCU or MCV space until that stranglehold is lifted. You get around it to a degree by being on the sidewalks. That's why you see so many uh, food cart operators around MCV because the demand is there, but that's the only place. Watch that they where can you walk, because the sidewalks talk. Indeed, that's a Madonna private label effort from the early '80s. But I digress. In the eight minutes or so we have left, I'd like to, you know, I'm going to invoke the '80s again. Back in the day, you'd go to the roller skating rink. I mean, you're a young guy; you might not remember this, but then they'd have free skate, air supply. This is the free skate period where Eric, you take over. Tell me things that I need to know, like if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or bar mitzvah on a Sunday night, things that may not be apparent in the shadow and persona of the barista everyday experience. Yeah. I think there are you know, two things. One, on the coffee side, there's so many things you can do to simply improve your coffee experience, whether it's at home or out at a shop. So we still see people that are surprised by the delineation between a, a blended coffee that's roasted darker and a single origin. Um, we continue to, to surprise people with, with tasting notes that they didn't know were apparent or this delineation of coffees from different environments, the, the talk of different varietals. Intuitively, people understand that an organic product like that would have different tasting notes. And, I, and if I compare it to apples, can you tell me the difference between a Honeycrisp and a, and a Fuji or a Granny Smith? People understand those differences, but they still don't perceive that in coffee until you walk them through that or they've had experience with it. So at the simplest, that's usually, you know, if you will, my, my elevator pitch for somebody to jump into third wave coffee and to improve what they're doing. And especially to get away from the Keurig, the, the single serve pods, et cetera, because when you consider what you're paying for it, what I challenge you with is empty out that pod, weigh the coffee. It's about four to six grams of coffee in there. 
think about there's no magic in there. That four to six grams of coffee can't magically make a hundred ounce coffee. It's still just a certain amount of grounds. There's there's nothing in there. There's no Acme black hole that suddenly other coffee sprouts out from. But we perceive those machines to be magical that way. And sometimes it's willful ignorance where we say, well, it's just convenient. So when we start to break that down, we can see you know what's in there. And then think about how much you're paying per pound. It's 40 to $50 a pound. If you're willing to give up 40 to $50 a pound for coffee, man, I could give you some of the best coffees in the world. And within a year, I could set you up with $1,000 equipment and your home that you've paid for through these savings. And that is relatively automated. We do have single serve brewers now that are pretty automated. So you can get all of it if you're willing to you know, open your mind to that. So you know, that's one aspect of you know, where, I, where I go when I open up in that sense. Um, the other side of it is where are we going with tipping, right? So we understand that during the pandemic, we were over tipping for takeout. Right? We, we, we had money we didn't know what to do with to a degree, right? We were receiving enhanced unemployment. We were receiving stimulus checks at a time where we couldn't get out, right? Amazon saw the benefit sure. of this. I don't think that was the intent of the stimulus was to push Amazon sales up. I think some of the stimulus was given too early that should have been held until businesses were reopened so that money could be given out to the community that needed it most. I think that money went, I mean, it's great that it went to savings to a degree, but I don't think all the shopping that happened on Amazon during those early months is really where that money needed to go. And when we think about tipping, people were extremely generous and prideful in terms of what they were giving to people that were working in environments that weren't getting the normal tip rate. But now we're in this world of where, where have we landed? Right? Are we still tipping 20% on takeout? Right? Are we tipping now 25%? We have service fees that have been added. Are, are we tipping on top of the service fee? There's so many questions and uncertainty and social pressure. As you said, no matter what I think, when that terminal turns around and that option is given and people are standing behind me and the barista or the service worker standing in front of me, I'm going to click that tip, whether I told you I was going to or not before, whether I had acted like I wasn't going to click it. I'm going to wind up clicking that tip, whether I want to or not. But it there's it weighs on you long term and that fatigue that you alluded to. So I, I think we're going to we're going to find where we go. I don't know where that is. I think we've taken some of that guesswork out. I'm proud that we present it in a manner today that says I, as the owner, am responsible for paying my employees and paying them a fair wage. and compensating them adequately. And that's part of where the cooperative model comes from. But we should get back to that realm of the employer should be paying their employees and should be paying them them sufficiently. And we know there's a labor shortage. So this idea that they're not getting paid enough, they can go find a job somewhere else. So you can you sh there should be some trust restored in the service industry that they're getting paid enough because otherwise they'd go work somewhere else because we know there's a shortage. So when we start to get back to that realm and, and that trust, I think we'll find some kind of common ground in terms that maybe places go and push the service fee and eliminate tipping altogether. I know that it's been tried. I, I know, like I said earlier, we're swimming upstream. Danny Meyer tried it famously years ago and eliminated it. Other places have tried it. It's been two years for us, and I'm feeling good that it's sustainable. Finally, an excerpt from my recent chat with Carrie Pfeiffer of Axios Richmond, one of the prolific digital media startups' regional efforts to invest in local news, especially where the paper of record is retrenching. 
Joining me is Carrie Pfeiffer. She is founding co-author and editor of Axios Richmond. This is one of the many, more than dozen local startups that emanated out of national media startup Axios, which was founded in 2016, 2017 uh, with national journalists with tremendous experience from Politico and the Washington Post who wanted to double down on areas they thought they were being abdicated in the great landscape of journalism. How are you? Hey, Robin, I'm great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Well, I've been eager to have you on. I've tried for several years back when you were at the Richmond Times-Dispatch and you had PR issues or attorney issues with it. But <laughs> this is this is always top of mind for me. As, a, as many listeners know, I'm a Richmonder. The mainstay newspaper here, your old haunt, is the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And it is now in the crosshairs. The parent company, Lee Enterprises, is in the crosshairs of a hedge fund, an activist hedge fund, which has cobbled together newspapers and cut them to the bone. And it's trying to provide an alternative as a publicly traded company and slashing itself in the meantime. There were many great victims of this downsizing, many great local reporters, and we're left with a kind of a skeletal newspaper, which has me wondering about the likes of Axios Richmond or the Virginia Mercury or Richmond BizSense or the others who are trying to fill this enormous void left across dozens and dozens and hundreds of localities across the United States. Yeah, well, we are we are doing our best here at Axios Richmond to try to fill that gap. But to your point, it's a it's a it's a pretty big gap to to uh, to fill. But I'm certainly happy to be one of like the startups, right? One of the new people coming into this space. Well, take me back to, you know, very briefly, more than a decade ago, Warren Buffett bought the Richmond Times-Dispatch and a handful of other papers. And he said, I remember him remarking on this, Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people on the planet, I think he's worth $70 billion, the Wizard of Omaha, Berkshire Hathaway. He said that church picnics and barbecue advertisements aren't going away. He held on to this paper for a few years. It was Berkshire Hathaway newspapers, and he promptly spit it out to Lee Enterprises. I mean, a person worth this much did not want to be in the newspaper business. Were you there when he acquired it and when he spit it out? I was. I was. I remember we had, there was speculation. I think, I can't remember if we all knew uh, that Media General at the time was for sale or not. I think we did, but there was a lot of speculation of where we would end up. And it was a celebration, we thought, when uh, Berkshire Hathaway, in our minds, it was Warren Buffett, right? Right. Warren Buffett was buying us. We had a conference room toast with Cherry Coke um, to sort of Because he loves to have Cherry yeah. Coke, right. Yeah, to sort of commemorate that. And uh, it was it, it was short-lived and I think not the cash infusion for from my perspective, from a lot of the, the people in the Richmond Newsroom's perspective, the sort of cash infusion we were hoping for. Well, that's the par that's the paradox in this, and we discussed it with a newspaper panel and everything. I'm going to excerpt it later in this episode. But could you have counterfactually? Axios is making the investment here, and Axios incidentally was acquired by Cox Enterprises for a tremendous amount. It's been a, a you know tremendously successful startup in the various verticals it's gone into: audio, newsletters, everything else that Axios does. Counterfactually, if you had one of the greatest investors in the world go in more than a decade ago to try to double down on local and it didn't work for him, I guess he wanted to kind of maybe ride it for the cash flows. I was noticing that it's not like they were hiring left and right and staffing up on it and making this kind of a regional colossus in a way that would drive circulation and advertising sales. Yeah, I think at the time, and I think there were reports at the time when, when Berkshire Hathaway acquired all of these East Coast newspapers, which was primarily what it was. Right. There were reports at the time that it was a, or maybe soon after, that it was a property acquisition for him, right? He was buying up a bunch of media companies, and those media companies came with media buildings. And I think I think he held on to those after the sort of 
rent to own arrangement with Lee Enterprises. He had, yeah, he had a temporary arrangement with Lee Enterprises where he kind of spit it out and said that you guys run it and we can have some sort of cash back arrangement. But then he commented in April of 2019, the newspaper business is, quote, toast. They're going to disappear, he said in an interview on Yahoo Finance. And I mean, he owns a handful of newspapers, including his hometown's Omaha World Herald. He even hosts a newspaper tossing competition during Berkshire's annual shareholder meeting. But the things that are essentially news, he said, is what you you don't know that you want to know. You know what happened in national sports the moment it happened, and you can go watch a video of it and so on. You can go to ESPN and see what's going on. You know what's happening in politics. You know what's happening in the stock market. What you didn't know what was going to appear in the ads. It was survival of the fattest, he explained. Whichever paper was the fattest one because it had the most ads in it, and ads are news to people. Now, we have seen a, a a tremendous haves versus have nots in the newspaper business, as you've realized. The New York Times has probably never felt as as comparatively hale and successful with its subscription business and the Trump bump. The Washington Post was acquired by one of the wealthiest people on the planet, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. The Wall Street Journal is backstopped by Rupert Murdoch. Even the Los Angeles Times and Boston Globe were acquired by billionaires. And then there's everyone else. There's everyone else who is dependent on circulation, on ad sales, and the local newspaper, which has you know, thinned its ranks over several years and ran a lot of newswire copy and is now coming back and trying to ask people to pay more belatedly for online subscriptions. Yeah, it was my my colleague at Axios, Sarah Fisher, had a fantastic piece on that this week on sort of what's happening in the overall media landscape, but especially in print media, uh, legacy media, especially as it sort of hangs on for a, a, a long, cold winter, I think might have been her, her headline on the story. So, yeah, he said, bad winter coming for U.S. media companies. I can quote from it. It says, it's a brutal, fearful time for American media with companies scrambling to cut costs and secure cash, a scenario reminiscent of the early pandemic. The new economic reality means layoffs, hiring freezes, and other cost-cutting measures. So far, nearly 3,000 media jobs have been cut this year with more than one-third, which are 1,100 coming from the news media industry. I mean, this this song has remained the same for much of the century. We've seen all the Pew statistics in the number of newsroom jobs that have contracted. It's just been enormous, the, the, the gutting of the sector. It's both secular and cyclical. And I want to fast forward to your departure from the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Axios knocking. I mean, when I look at the Axios local map, I mean, it's pretty amazing what they've set up so far. Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Des Moines, Miami, Philadelphia, obviously Richmond, Seattle, Austin, Chicago, D.C., Detroit, Nashville, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Tampa Bay, Boston, Columbus, Denver, Houston, Northwest Arkansas, Raleigh, North Carolina, San Francisco, the Twin Cities, and coming soon, Cleveland, Indy, New Orleans, Portland, San Antonio, San Diego, and probably other cities. But I have to wonder, you know, you're putting out this email every day, which is indispensable and read by many Richmonders and Virginians, but you need the the raw material to go into it. You need the shoe leather reporting. You need the reporters in City Hall or at the cop shop reporting on the demise of the police chief. And it's not like you and Ned, your your battery mate, have that manpower. So, I mean, well, we have some, we have two, two, a two person manpower team, but I think that's kind of what's really interesting to me about, about Axios Local and Axios Richmond and, and what, uh, the Axios model has, has done is that, yes, we write a newsletter every day and that's sort of the delivery method for our journalism. And Ned and I are out there every day reporting stories, actually doing shoe leather, uh, beat reporting. Uh, two people is, is a small team to do it and certainly, uh, no two-person team can do what a 
newspaper can do with a newsroom or a reporting team of of 20 or 30, although that's certainly not what exists at the local level anymore. Um, but no, it's still a fair amount of reporting that we're doing. And I think that was important to the to the founders of Axios when they started the company, that they were hiring journalists and reporters. And they've sort of been very vocal about the fact that they went into every market and found the best reporters there. And I can say they have. I mean, my Axios local colleagues are, are are stunning in their talent. They're Pulitzer Prize winners. There are people from the Atlantic, from their daily newspapers, from their uh, daily NPR affiliates, from their uh, daily papers who made this switch and are bringing over sort of the raw reporting skills and putting it into Axios and putting it into the Axiom format. So the bet is that at some point you fill the vacuum so much locally, nationally, that it becomes an indispensable login. You can't be a player in a market like Raleigh or Richmond or the Twin Cities without this login. You have to have the information to have the know. I mean, clearly Axios proved this in D.C. It proved this in New York, in many of the markets that it covered nationally. But is there a precedent out there for getting a return on investment for investing in local shoe leather reporting? I mean, I'm thinking about the people who have decamped, really wonderful reporters who were not necessarily in profitable beats. Your colleague, Kenya Hunter, at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, who covered education, which has kind of become abdicated and it's become a news desert in Richmond. Mark Robinson, who covered a lot of socioeconomic issues that weren't necessarily profitable up front. The other people doing the, the difficult, not glamorous, not necessarily, you know, MSNBC guest national caliber reporter people, but the ones that were filling the news hole and filling the print. Yeah, but I I, I think to me in, in this, and I could be a little Pollyanna, Pollyanna about this, but there is always value in reporting. There is always value in somebody going out and getting the information and holding public officials or people in power accountable and then telling the public what's happening. There's always going to be value in that. The question is, and fortunately for me, not a question I have to answer, but how do you build the infrastructure around that to make it profitable for the people to go out and do that work? And one of the things that Axios does is they say, let's make it digestible, right? Like let's, as much as, you know, writing a 4,000 word story about fill in the blank education, housing and why it matters, gives a reporter a lot of space to do that work in, distilling it down. And just saying, here's actually the facts of what happened is critical to Axios, to the mission of that. And then it also allows the infrastructure by which people, the, these small, we can grow, right? Richmond could eventually become bigger. And instead of having two reporters, maybe we could have three or four, but we're building an audience by giving them the news in a more digestible format. It's still the news though, by the way, it's still the sort of classic reporter banging on doors. Here's what's happening. It's then just presenting that in a way more digestible way, plus some fun stuff in there, right? Some right. eat this great sandwich in town. You know, here's some business news. Here's some other stuff happening that anybody who's worked in media knows that readers love. Readers, you know, people want to know accountability journalists. They want to know journalism. They want to know what's happening. They also want to know where they can eat and the fun thing to do this weekend. You were listening to The Local Motion, my recent chat with Carrie Pfeiffer of Axios Richmond. You can catch all these interviews in their entirety and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more. We're eight and a half years old, after all, wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. 
Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And you can catch me on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.